Welcome to Partnering Leadership, conversations with leading influencers in the greater Washington, D.C. region and global thought leaders, helping you align better with your purpose, grow professionally with meaning, and have a greater impact. For additional leadership insights and bonus content, visit us at PartneringLeadership.com. Now here's your host, Mahan Tavakoli. Welcome to Partnering Leadership. I'm really excited this week to be welcoming Harold Pettigrew. Harold is the CEO of WAKIF, which is one of Washington, D.C. metropolitan region's leading community development financial institutions. They're focused primarily on access to capital products and services and capacity building for low and moderate income entrepreneurs, women entrepreneurs, and entrepreneurs of color. I really enjoyed this conversation, finding out more about Harold's upbringing right here in D.C., and his purpose-driven impact as he continues to lead WAKIF. I'm sure you will enjoy the conversation and learn a lot from it too. I also enjoy hearing from you. Keep your comments coming. Mahan at mahantavikoli.com. There's a microphone icon on partneringleadership.com. You can leave voice messages for me there. Don't forget to follow the podcast, Tuesday Conversations with Magnificent Changemakers from the Greater Washington, D.C. DMV region, like Harold, and Thursday conversations with brilliant global thought leaders. Now here's my conversation with Harold Pettigrew. Harold Pettigrew, welcome to Partnering Leadership. I am thrilled to have you in this conversation with me. Delighted to be here with you, Mahan. Thanks for the invite. I'm really excited having a known impact in the region and in the community, Harold, and the passion you have for Washington, D.C., But before we get to some of those conversations, would love to know whereabouts you grew up and your upbringing's impact on who you have become as a person and as a leader. Absolutely. I always like to start there because it really has not only defined what much of my journey has been professionally and in life, but it's something that drives me day in and day out. I'm a DC guy, DC dude. I often put it in much of my story. I was really impacted by a lot of the happenings in the 80s and 90s here in D.C. I grew up here, D.C. public school graduate all the way through and really saw firsthand how the city was very different back in the 80s and 90s. And that really imprinted much of my early start and how I viewed the city and what I ultimately became professionally in economic development and those sort of things. This is home. I always like to tell folks that it's great being in this place I call home. And knowing that every day I'm doing things to just try to make it better each and every day. This is where my story starts, Mahan, here in D.C. and in this region. I mean, this is where I am today, working day in and day out. So with your story starting in D.C., Harold, you already alluded to the fact that the city has changed a lot since the time you were growing up. In what ways was D.C. different and how did that impact you during your upbringing? Yeah, I remember some darker times here in the city, where in the 80s and 90s, there was a grittiness that was here for sure. And we had the unfortunate title, so to say, that no city wants to be in the murder capital. And some of the dangers of growing up here were very present, just being frank and being real about it. And so I remember some of the parts of the city and what they used to look like. They were parking lots back then versus a lot of the developments now. And I remember plenty of life lessons as well that you grow up with, just understanding some of the adult things you have to deal with, and sometimes in terms of life and death as well. 
it was just a very different place where opportunity wasn't as available, particularly for Black and Brown people growing up. You could feel the divide even as starkly at that time as well, particularly the racial wealth divide. I grew up east of the river, which was predominantly Black and west of the park, predominantly white. Conditions were the same back then. I remember that time in the city. It really has dominated what I do and really advised and informed really what I do uh, right now in economic development. It was a great time to grow up because of all the lessons and things that I had an opportunity to learn and things that I was exposed to. And even as a D.C. public school kid, the opportunities that were afforded, even though we had our challenges. Some of those challenges had to do with the war on drugs that was going on at that time that impacted your family too, Harold? Yeah, and that really, I often lift that up. And there's this famous picture of Nancy Reagan at the White House. She's doing a Just Say No march for children here in D.C. It was a couple thousand kids that were marched down to the White House. There was a big rally. And that picture is always special to me because on the stage with her, behind her is my grandmother, my aunts and uncles. They were a lot younger. I was a wee young toddler (laughs) kind of thing. And I, but I had my Just Say No shirt on. And what that represented, my grandmother very much because of my father's story, was an advocate. And she fought much of her life to make sure that our children growing up in the 80s and 90s were not subject to the loss, the death, all of those things that was experienced during that time of the city. My father, his story was dominated by that. And it's no secret. And I talk about this often and lift it up that my father was a drug addict. And so he was directly impacted. That impacted his presence in my life, which he was absent for much of it. He had his own demons to deal with. He had its necessary impacts on my grandmother and how she fought to make sure that other families weren't impacted in this way. On my mom, I grew up as an only child. And my mom did a phenomenal job and her very best to make sure that she could provide. But I'd be lying if I said that wasn't a gap in who I became and how it motivated me because of his absence and the things that I learned and the mentors that stepped into my life were a result of that absence. My father's story was certainly one that unfortunately wasn't unique to a lot of the kids that I grew up with here in the city. It wasn't just a war on drugs. It was culturally the decimation of many families that kind of happened during that time period. And for many of us growing up, it was the resilience of being a kid, just trying to understand what it means to grow up in a city um, as dynamic as DC. And there were so many of us that connected that we're trying to navigate through all together. You had all of this chaos and some of these challenges going on all around you. Your grandmother was a fighter. Your mom was a fighter. So great lessons that you learned from them. But what was it that got you so active in wanting to be in a leadership role, organize others, even to the point that in high school, when the control board's appointed emergency school board decided to close McKinley High, which you were a student at, you were the one organizing other students to give talks and go out to protests and do everything else. What was it that got you so active so early on at a leadership level? mobilizing others to action. There were a couple of people that really influenced. I mentioned my grandmother early. She is a fighter and an organizer in many ways. And a lot of those things were embedded in me very early. In many ways, 
not through osmosis necessarily, but I saw a lot of these things on display as she didn't grow up in that way. It was out of necessity that she stepped into fighting for my father and his life, that she went on to many great things nationally with organizing around parent advocacy, dealing with issues with drugs and things in our communities. I saw that growing up. And my path here educationally led me to McKinley High School. And I had the, the great fortune. I was in the NJROTC program, the Naval Junior Reserve Officers Training Corps. And that program was led by a gentleman by the name of Charles Washington. He's Master Gunnery Sergeant Charles Washington, to be specific. And he was a Marine. He took many of us and trained us and provided the father figure framework that we all really needed to not only be young leaders growing up in the city, but to understand that we needed to be more, that we're better than our circumstance. And he really instilled in us so many lessons. God rest his soul. We lost him a couple of years back, but he was such a prominent figure through my four years of high school. And I was fortunate to go to high school in ninth grade and go all the way through. I was in ROTC that entire time and rose up the ranks of leadership. And very early on, we're calling each other sir and ma'am in ninth grade. How many teenagers <laughs> do you know at 13 and 14? Or yes, sir, and in saluting and everything else. And he really taught us that and really instilled in us not only the leadership principles, but what it meant to lead, what it meant to follow, what servant being in service to our community and city really meant. And so by the time we got to my senior year, I was locked and loaded, man. Like at that point, <laughs> and I was, it was a time where all the possibilities, I remember this feeling, right, of all the possibilities being ahead. And we had been trained so much and have been in so many different opportunities and pursued things in leadership that we saw this as a big challenge and one that we felt as kids we could organize around and have a voice. And the backdrop was that the city was going through bankruptcy. The city and its institutions were failing in many ways. And the federal the control board came in and took a lot of that control. And it speaks to the issues that exist today around home rule. We saw it as a need to make sure we were speaking to say why this is wrong, particularly the importance that schools play in our communities, foundational institutions. And so it wasn't beyond us. It wasn't extraordinary activities. But we were already used to speaking out and being a part of the Mayor's Youth Leadership Institute that Marion Barry had, that had put in place. We were already doing it. And so we were just an active bunch, but it hurt. Let me be clear. That was a very painful time. Who wants to go to high school and your senior year, your high school is shuttered. It was an emotional time. Looking back, I wouldn't want those types of things to happen again. But as a kid, it was such a great experience and real life lesson. And, and public service and political leadership and how cities work, all of those things that uh, I couldn't have imagined getting any other life sort of education and lesson around. It was a great time, a painful one, but it, it was a great time. You got those great lessons, Harold, but it also goes to the point of the power of a positive, caring role model in all young people's lives where part of the strength that you as a young adult, part of the inspiration that you had to act when McKinley High was being considered for closure was given to you through the strength of that role model, that caring adult outside of the family environment. What I wonder is, 
as you reflect on the opportunities in our communities, because it's not as if these are issues that we dealt with back in the 90s and now we are beyond those. How do you think as a society and as a community, we can ensure more young heralds have some of those role models, some of those people that give them the confidence that they have some control over their environment and their world and are not just subject to their circumstances? I think as kids growing up, we all look for not only direction, but shelter. And there's a burgeoning voice all within us that in one way or another wants to come out. And I think I was very fortunate to have people that not only set the stage, but pushed me forward to find your voice, to understand who you are, understand the challenges that you may be facing, but also keep your eye towards how to get beyond that. And so I think it's important now more than it ever has been the role of representation in our communities for men, for women, for in Black communities to have Black professionals and Black people that can show that sort of representation in Asian communities across all of our communities, that we have representation that shows us in the future being given authority or or those that are adults giving authority and pushing kids to ensure that they understand what's possible and and what's within their power to achieve. And I was very fortunate. I always tell people that I'm a D.C. public school dude because throughout my time, it was really accelerated when I got to high school, but I've been fortunate to have that throughout my educational career. Like from a kid growing up, I remember my earliest teachers being that same way. And I remember Mrs. Perry in my fourth grade class, I slacked on a spelling bee and she looked up at me and was like, and I, I snapped back because I saw her <laughs> because she knew I could do better. I knew I could do better. And the moment I saw Mrs. Perry, I was like, all right, let me stop messing around. And I just think it speaks to the role of teachers in our lives. It speaks to the role that and there's people in the community have in our lives, in the lives of children. Just such fond memories of those who pushed me along the way. I mean, it was really formative in my early days. As you were pushed along the way, you also continued to pursue your dreams. Why did you then decide to go to NC State for college and study political science? Yeah, you know, I was hurt when McKinley was ordered closed. Frankly, I wanted to get out of D.C. Um, I felt the leadership at the time had unfortunately let down like its children. And I don't say that lightly. And I felt like I wanted to get away far enough that I could have a different experience, but close enough that if I needed to get home, I could. And one thing that was important for me was being in a place that I felt all around me was the campus experience. And this is also where people matter. I went down to do a college visit and the welcoming environment in NC State is a predominantly white school, about 35,000 kids. And at the time, there were roughly 4,000 Black students on campus. And I tell you, biggest school in North Carolina, but it felt so small and comfortable and just full of opportunity. And for a D.C. kid going down there, I didn't speak to people and people were walking by, hey, how you doing? It's like, <laughs> do, I, do I know that person? One of the upperclassmen um, that was leading the tours and stuff, he was like, hey, young fella, we speak. So... <laughs> <laughs> leave all your leave all your city tendencies aside. You're in the South now. We speak to folks, and so speak to people. I used to wear my hat over my eyes and everything, and they're like, "Nah, lift it so people can see your face, see your smile." And it was just such a warm environment, and they provided scholarships and they 
had this balance of articulating, we want you to be yourself, to be connected here as a student generally, but specifically as a Black student, like your identity, we don't run away from, we embrace it. So there were a lot of supports in place that was very welcoming. And it just made for a great feeling for me to select going down there, but it was really steeped in some the disappointment I felt being here. Both of those that are the opposite, but the two sides of the same coin that gives reason as to why I wanted to go down there. The welcoming nature of there, but then also the disappointment of feeling like I'm being dispelled from a place that I love so much in McKinley High School. It seems like you had some politics running in your veins and some desire at that point (laughs) where at NC State, they were welcoming, they were warm. It is a different culture to a certain extent. But in the year 2000, you were elected as the third Black president on this majority white campus of 35,000 students. What got you to pursue the opportunity and then get elected? That was an interesting time. And for me personally, I was hyper-involved. I used to sign my emails behind like when I would send them to folks forever in the struggle for change. (laughs) And that was like, I was a kid, like 19 years old, having that as a signature line. What a beautiful statement of self-empowerment where you believed through your upbringing, through the environment, through the support, through some of what you had in you, that you were going to bring about that change. I love hearing that. I think beautiful testament of some of your core attributes and development. Thank you for lifting that up. Early on, it was planted within me that the space we occupy should be better when we leave. And I believe that firmly. It drives me for what I do today at Wake If. And I've always felt like every place that I'm spending time and being in the company of others, that place needs to be better. And I need to make sure that for all the people that got me here and invested in me in different ways, how I pay that back is making sure those places are better. I remember my earliest days feeling that way from high school through NC State and beyond. It was really present. I just thought about it anecdotally of just lifting that up, but it's with you lifting it. It has reminded me that's always been present for every job, for every place that I've been. Thank you for lifting that up for sure. You were talking about running for president and getting elected. Yeah, it was a very interesting time. And if you go back to the late 90s, early 2000s, there was a lot of the affirmative action discussions. Like I remember that my freshman year being a very big debate in North Carolina and the state general assembly and things. And for me, there was always this just penchant towards activism. And very early on, there was a, a group of us who were really set on making sure that we were going to be active, that we were going to motivate others to be active. And I had the good fortune of having upperclassmen that were ahead of me who thought the same way. And they really pushed and motivated for a lot of these different opportunities and student leadership to get involved. When the opportunity came, there was a, a buddy of mine, and he unfortunately passed a couple of years ago and really young, named Andrew Payne. He was one of the very first people in my life who, like, hey, you should consider this. I think you have a voice that the campus could benefit from. He's something as simple as that. And it, it stayed with me. I went home over the, the break during my junior year 
And it stayed with me. I just reflected on it and really came to the why not perspective. I've been very active. I was very, I was fortunate as well. The fall before we don't have homecoming king and queen, we had leader of the pack. And so I was elected, quote unquote, leader (laughs) of the pack. And so it felt like a natural trajectory. I felt like I had something to offer. We're trying to help the school move forward and deal with issues to be able to bring people together and have a steady voice for the times that we were in. So I put my hat in the ring. You put your hat in the ring. You were elected. And then September 11th happened in your final year at NC State. It was after my time as student body president. And the, the guy that followed me, I was no longer president, but I was in my final year of school. And I remember some of the messages that were coming out where people were trying to understand what's happening around the country. And emails coming out, oh my God, we're under attack. Hey, our family's okay. I don't know what's going on. Can someone just explain? We all have our experiences going back to that moment. The importance of it to me, not to venture down the emotional elements of it, because it was for all of us, just an emotionally taxing day. And being in DC, I couldn't reach family and was uncertain of what was happening here. What it brought into focus for me was I wanted to be in New York. It was my last year of school. I was debating different whether I wanted to go to law school or I was a political science kid. So it's like, what do you do after that? Either you teach or go to law school. <laughs> and I didn't want to do either. And I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life. I ended up learning about a fellowship program where you could work with New York City government. It was competitive. They only selected 25 kids each year. But I put everything into applying to that program because I wanted to be in a city I had different opportunities during summers in the past of going up there for very short periods of time. But what I understood on that day was this day was happening in this particular place because it was a special place. And I felt like I wanted to understand why it was special. I wanted to be there to experience why it was special. But even more, if I could participate in any way of helping the city to come back to rebuild whatever little way that a college graduate could. I wanted to be there. And so it, it really crystallized what I wanted to do after college. The program that I ended up participating in was the New York City Urban Fellows. I mean, I was fortunate to be selected um, as one of 25 to go up to New York. And for nine months, we would have a fellowship with within different positions within the New York City government. And at this time, it was the very beginning of the Bloomberg administration. I was literally their first year. We had to interview agencies, and those agencies interviewed us. And my placement was where I ended up was to be the special assistant to the commissioner for small business services. <laughs> and it was interesting because we sat in this room and all the fellows were there and Commissioner Walsh was there. And he was like, yeah, I looked through all the resumes and there was one of you that came from North Carolina and, and you were involved in student government. I worked in Charlotte. Um, so I have some connection to North Carolina. I was like, oh, yeah, that was me. There's another one of you that he started rattling out a couple of different things. I was like, yeah, that was me. Yeah, that was me. <laughs> so, it was, so it was a bit of a match for me to step in as a special assistant. And that experience, I have to say professionally, was the single most anchoring opportunity that I, I had to really set the path for everything that I was able to do really after. Being right there at the, the right hand, so to say, of the commissioner being his assistant, helping him to manage his office the very first year that the Bloomberg administration was there trying to rebuild the city and have it recover. And it exposed me at such a high level to a city operating. And the juxtaposition, just to connect it a little bit, was that 
I had come, I was five or six years from having come from a sitting behind that was going through bankruptcy and had a population of 500,000 people going to a city of 8 million that had such energy and drive behind it and that operated so well. And so in my head, in my young head, I was like, how does that city of 8 million people operate in such a way where the services are working? There's smart people here thinking big and they built big and everything was just so big in terms of the ideas and scale of which they were thinking. And the backdrop for me was DC, 500,000 in bankruptcy and all those things. So it was really this juxtaposition for me in a, less, in a lesson as I was experiencing New York to have that backdrop of home and being in New York really, and I don't say this lightly, it really restored my faith and what cities can do and what they can be. Um, and so it really set the stage for much of my career. Leadership matters. It is not just that government is not functional, local government is not functional, or the larger you are, the less functional you are. Leadership matters. And in New York, the different city leaders, the many people that were active on the government front cleaned up a very dysfunctional, very corrupt government. So by the time you were there, your hope was restored in seeing that city governments can actually function. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And for me, even at that time, being a student of history, understanding what that arc was, it was amazing that the city actually, and it wasn't even just the, the corruption, but New York was going through its bankruptcy as well in its times. And to see that over that time period, each chapter that each new leader played in moving the city's story forward, it led to that time period. And so it was a valuable lesson for me. And it was the backdrop, frankly, for me coming back to D.C. in 2005. I studied urban planning. I ended up going to NYU and studied urban planning, just fitting in this pathway. I have this personal experience. I've worked and did those kind of things. Let me get some schooling just to make sure you know, I'm going back with some more technical skills and ended up going to NYU Wagner, which was a, a phenomenal program that balanced the technical hard skills with being an economist to urban policy and then more traditional urban planning all at one. And so hitting 2005, when I graduated, I was hightailing back to DC and made sure I didn't apply for any opportunities in New York. I knew I wanted to come back home because it was like this fresh injection of New York City energy with the academic training. <laughs> and I ended up coming back to DC through another fellowship, the Capital City Fellows Program. It started with DC government in 2005. Eventually, as a 31-year-old, you made it to become part of the mayor's cabinet, Vincent Gray's cabinet, as the city's small business director. What was that experience like for you, Harold? It was tough, just to, to be forthright. I had been in government across a couple of administrations, starting with the Williams administration through the Fenty administration and with the Gray administration. And the challenges we were dealing with at the time were very tough. And it's interesting because looking at the acceptance of small business and the wide scale at which entrepreneurship is understood and the ways that it's celebrated now, it wasn't quite the case back then. Back then, we were building programs like to help people to export and to think about international markets and how to leverage programs within the federal government. Because even though the federal government is in our backyard here locally, the formal connections so that businesses have greater opportunity you know, really wasn't here. And then the local procurement program has always had its historical challenges. It was tough because 
like you talked about the chapters of a city and how you have leadership over time that build and build and build. We were at this very early stage where the agency had a lot of great need for building. And being an operations guy and everything else, I had to spend a lot of time building a lot of the foundation and infrastructure. That doesn't always align with political timing. It doesn't always align with the issues of the day and those kind of things. So it was really tough isolating because it very few understand what it takes to build a company, to build an organization, to build a government agency. And the team that I had the pleasure of working with, we were head down building. And it was just tough because that wasn't always understood of what was needed to make an agency that worked for its people, that worked for the small businesses that were here. One of the greatest experiences of my career, but it was very, it was pretty tough being in a political environment, dealing with city council members and demands of the mayor's office. And it was a great balance, but it was a tough chapter for sure. That chapter also enabled you to understand some of the political aspects and other aspects of city's operations. Then in 2016, what drew you to the Washington Area Community Investment Fund that now you serve as the CEO of? It's interesting. For many years, and even during my time in different chapters in local government, I had actually partnered with WACIF, and that's best as short, the short articulation of the acronym. I'd often partnered with WACIF to manage loan funds and other small business programs. And when in 2015, the previous executive director, he had asked, would I be interested in joining a board? So I was actually in discussions about joining a board and then he would announce that he would be resigning because he wanted to move closer to family. He was having another child. His family was in Pennsylvania. So I was actually helping recruit a new leader for the organization. And then one day he asked me, had I thought about taking over a CEO? And I hadn't thought one bit about it until he asked me the question. And the moment he asked me the question behind, I could not get it out of my head. At the time I was working for an organization now called Prosperity Now doing national work, focused on entrepreneurship still. I was the director of entrepreneurship, but it was working in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan and Arizona and New York City. And I really missed working, doing things at home. And at the time, I was actually between considering being a small business director for the city of Detroit. And so I was in discussions with Detroit and I could not just stop thinking about what I could do at home in this role. And so it really resonated. I started to shift conversations from joining the board to actually interviewing for the CEO post. And what I found was that I'm not a finance guy. I'm not a, not a former banker or anything like that. And the board understood that. They wanted someone with a fresh take and an understanding of what this organization could be, how we can have impact in a very different way. And it all worked out during our, some of our discussions about the future and I poked and prodded a bit as well because nonprofit boards can be very tough, particularly for a CEO. And so I wanted to make sure they knew for me coming in, I'm very much a builder. This is home. I'm very passionate about the work and all of our thoughts on where we could go together. It really aligned um, as an organization. That's why Wakeif is fortunate to have you as a CEO, Harold, because it takes a certain level of understanding and empathy to go through this messiness of the decision-making of what are the right ways of helping elevate the community. There aren't any simple answers 
that do right by the residents and make it for a thriving entrepreneurial climate. However, with understanding, with listening, with continual feedback and experimentation, you can make sure that you're contributing to that elevation, helping all of the residents have access to the opportunities that will benefit all of us in return. Now, you've also uh, gotten involved, whether it is being appointed to Treasury's Community Development Advisory Board, you are now a finance leader fellow at the Aspen Institute, Community Investment Council of the Fed Reserve Bank of Richmond. So you have a lot of these opportunities to give voice to what the community needs. What do you think should be a priority for all the leaders listening, both with respect to this region in terms of supporting the elevation of the community and just leaders that want to make sure that we have a more equitable future in our communities? I've been very fortunate, Mahans, throughout my career now, not only having worked in local government, but seeing a couple cities now like PC and New York and applying a lot of those direct experiences to advising other cities around the country and having done some advisory work with the World Bank and pulling in just a lot of different insights. And often the lessons in my head aren't being put to use, then it certainly goes to waste. And so I've wanted to make sure that in places where I can be helpful, platforms and organizations where I can be helpful, that I can provide those insights. And I think for what we do at Wake If day in and day out, provides very on the ground sort of perspective of what's happening, not only in our communities, but what entrepreneurs need to be successful. So in that regard, I've tried to bring voice. How do you begin to create better systems, create ecosystems that work for the people who live in them? And that's been the through line for each of those organizations or entities that have really good fortune to be a part of. There's a couple of things that come to mind. And I think first, before we get to any specific tools and those kind of things, there has to be a deep commitment to what equity means in our communities. Very specifically speaking, if we're not dealing intentionally with issues of race and how that defines our geography, how that defines all of the economic health indicators, any indicator that is a measure of progress in our respective communities, the results are all the same. Particularly, you have Black and brown communities that are doing worse no matter what the economic measure is. Unless we're interrogating intentionally and getting truthfully to the why and developing solutions at a city, county, state, federal level, we are never going to resolve these types of issues. You know, and so there has to be intentionality. Like just one example, right? We, I always talk about, I'm proud to live east of the river. It's where I was born. It's where I intentionally live now. And with a lot of our funders and investors that are in this region, I would ask a simple question. Have you ever thought of why east of the river, Washington, D.C. is predominantly black? It has the worst indicators, be it economic or health wise. Have you ever asked the question why? If you haven't, that's the starting point, because we can invest all day. But if it's not being tied to historically what the problems were and us identifying solutions that are tied into those. Now, I think we we have a direct solution that's tied to it. I have to raise money. The sourcing of capital doesn't start with me. And if it's not those who are at the source of where capital is being held, being very intentional about understanding, here's how we are in a very real way going to have an impact, 
with, and this is philanthropy, this is corporate entities, this is religious institutions that invest, all the institutions that have capital that's being held or looking to deploy in communities, if those very central questions are being asked and with intentionality of understanding what the issues have been, and frankly, what role their institutions might have played in them, we're not having a real and genuine conversation. So to me, that's where it always has to start. And this is not any different from a federal government standpoint of things. When we look at the history of the country and how programs have excluded some and over-invested in many ways with others, we have to be intentional about where we're starting the conversation and understanding what we have to account for in the solutions of today. Because our communities didn't just arrive this way. And so unless we're having a very real conversation, <laughs> like we're not having a real conversation. That to me is where it often starts. That is a great recommendation for all of us in that it starts with asking the right questions and then the willingness to listen, to understand, rather than listen to confirm our previous biases. So asking is where it starts. And I'm really appreciative of you asking those questions also from the leaders in the community as we look for a more equitable future in our communities, in our society. In addition to some of the advice that you have already shared with respect to Leadership Herald, I wonder... Are there any leadership resources or practices that you typically find yourself recommending to other leaders? There's a great podcast I start off with first, uh, Partnering Leadership. <laughs> I knew I liked you and you were a smart guy. You are super duper smart and I really like you. <laughs> that is your first place to everyone listening. That is your first place to continue listening to the wisdom and guidance coming out of this podcast. It's interesting because what I often try to do is I'm the worst at reading books and just to be forthright, like it's hard for me to sit down to get through cover to cover. My way of consuming information and being in my sort of quiet space is actually podcasts. And it's not just the leadership lessons. And there are a number of them that I listen to get leadership lessons or to hear the narratives and stories of others to understand what their leadership journeys have been to see where there are ways that I need to check what I'm doing or understand a different way that I may need to be thinking about the work that I'm doing. That's my isolated, that's my insular sort of way of continuing my own progress. One thing I do value is connecting with others. Others who are my former board chair, when I come on board at WAGIF, she said very early, one of our very first conversations, being in this leadership post, you've been in different leadership positions before. But this one can be very isolated. It could be very challenging, particularly being a CEO. But I think this has application beyond that. What will be important is understanding it being in spaces where you're similarly situated or you're with those who understand without you having to say all the time, here's the challenges that I'm dealing with. And I tell you, the, the spaces that I've been fortunate to be a part of, and I like to say is the different tribes that I'm connected to here in this region. And nationally, it's really provided me the outlets and space to be among brilliant people who are facing some of the same challenges, who are out of necessity, innovating and and doing a lot of great things. For them, it's necessity. 
to have impact in their communities, but just being in spaces where you're experiencing the collective brilliance of others who might have just that small nugget of perspective that weighs heavily and deeply in shaping who I am or helping to give me that next shot at sort of caffeine and motivation and passion or reminding me <laughs> to get back on the horse. So I just love it. From Leadership Greater Washington here locally to, you mentioned the Aspen Fellows, and that was a more recent opportunity that I had to be a part of right now. But it's just great spaces to be connected to others. And I think that's one value point that I haven't always appreciated just throughout my career. Being in spaces where you can be connected to others who are trying to solve some of the same challenges, just simply having that sort of fellowship and a space of belonging. I think it's even more important for us as leaders to find those spaces. It is really important for us to find those spaces because it provides us the opportunities to also learn from others as I have learned from and grown from your experience, Harold, which I truly appreciate. Thank you so much for joining me in this conversation, Harold Pettigrew. Thank you. Truly my pleasure, Mahan. Happy to be here and love to talk again. You've been listening to Partnering Leadership with your host, Mahan Tavakoli. For additional leadership insights and bonus content, visit us at partneringleadership.com.